0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. My own speakers? You can hear me okay? All right. I just, don't, I just don't hear myself. That's fine. Philippians chapter 2. I don't listen to myself anyway, so I don't... Philippians chapter 2 and, oh now I can hear myself, um, we are ready to obey. And uh, verse 12 and following. I think we tied together everything uh, on Sunday related to verse 11. We know that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And boy I'm waiting for that day. And uh, we're not there yet but it will happen and uh, all the blessings that are associated with that. So uh, tonight I want to get our first look at verses 12 uh, through 18 and uh, we'll learn how to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We'll learn how God is at work in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Um, I'll try to take about 20 years to teach those two verses because it's just too convicting to try to preach verse 14. Uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And I don't think I can preach it. I am, I am the biggest grumbler and disputer on earth, and yet uh, uh, I've got to preach that. So um, we'll get there. And then we're going to prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we appear as lights in the world. So uh, marvelous verses in this passage. And uh, by the time we get to the end of this paragraph, Look at verses 17 and 18. We talk about living sacrifice. What about the dying sacrifice? What about being poured out as a drink offering? Uh, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. So uh, there's some blessings to consider there related to our spiritual priesthood. All right. Well, God is spirit; He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. In preparation for the study of the Word of God this evening. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father's faithfulness. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have this evening to assemble together. Father, we thank You for a lampstand that You have so faithfully preserved uh, day after day, month after month, year after year father you are you are faithful, and uh, you continue to provide exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think and so tonight, once again, you've provided for the truth of your word to go forth, and we pray that we would be humble to receive it, that uh, with humility we would receive the word implanted able to save our souls. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, before we get started on work out your salvation, uh, we will have some opportunity for question and answer tonight. Question time. Uh, we're going to give Bill Kelly the uh, the leadoff question. There, microphone is ready to go. To you, to here, we it? have the young, healthy uh, runner that can cross the room any number of times.
1: Um, I know of a church that split over the difference between being filled with the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit, and I was thinking about that today. Um, so, if you if you would, could you explain the difference? What's it mean to be filled with the Spirit, and what's it mean to be filled by the Spirit?
0: I have no idea. Um, no, and that's not to be silly, but I mean, ultimately speaking, it's the same thing. And and you have, you have a dative case. You have being filled. You have with the Spirit, and, and uh, so let's look at Ephesians. Um, it depends on the preposition. Depends on the. Uh, what are we look at? Ephesians five. So do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So let's make sure I'm not going to misspeak here. So you have plerusta, it's a passive imperative. So how do you obey a passive imperative? Do you have to do something to obey a passive imperative? Okay. All right. Well, you have to keep it from, you have to not prevent it from happening. That's something you have to do, okay? Uh, so uh, you have a, a, a passive imperative of playrao. It says playrusta en numati, n numati. You have the preposition n, which is usually translated in, but it can be with, and it can be by, and it can be instrumental, and it can be a sphere. All right, and then you have numati. You have the the dative case of numa. And so um, a person that wants to argue about be filled in, or be filled with, or be filled by. They're really arguing semantics at that point. They're arguing an English translation of a Greek expression. And um, to me, a lot of those are uh, distinctions without a difference. If, uh, so if I'm being filled with the Holy Spirit, am I'm being filled by the Holy Spirit, uh, it's, I'm, I'm being filled with, I, th- I think with is better than by, but I don't dispute that the Holy Spirit is the agent who does the filling. So uh, why are we why are we going to split a church over that? I guess that's my question.
1: Well, I, I guess I was just kind of wondering because I've, there's nothing in Scripture that I've come across that speaks about uh, being filled by the Spirit. Now, I know it does talk about baptism, you know, by the Spirit and things like that, but nothing that actually says that we are imbued by the Holy Spirit with some special whatever-whatever. Right. And, and if...
0: And if you have the uh, the uh, treasury of scripture knowledge in your Logos library, uh, pull up the treasury of scripture knowledge from Ephesians 5.18, and there is a lengthy paragraph there related to be filled, and uh, a summary there on on what the, the grammar is talking about. I think you'll enjoy that too. No, not with the treasury of scripture knowledge. That was R.A. Torrey. Oh, the stuff he's dealing with. Probably not. All right. Uh, let's, you have a question over here.
2: All right. We'll get Eliezer, and then we'll get Carol. How about that? First Samuel sixteen fourteen. I'm sorry. Say that again. First Samuel sixteen fourteen. Okay. Uh, my question is: Was was Saul a born again man? And was the departing of the spirit of the Lord mentioned in First Samuel sixteen fourteen? A reference uh, to the discipline of the Lord as mentioned in Hebrews chapter twelve.
0: Yes and yes, yeah, Saul was born again, although I have encountered people that have disputed that with me. Uh, Saul was a born again believer, but he was carnal and he was reversionistic and walking in darkness. Uh, the people that don 't like that are people that don 't want to admit that believers can be carnal and and be reversionistic and walk in darkness. Uh, so they have a theology that doesn 't allow that to happen, so they will assume that Saul was not of the elect and was never saved to begin with, and he died and went to hell. problem is is that the testimony of scripture when david is uh, is uh, giving the the funeral dirge for Saul and Jonathan, he says that they are united and they are united in life they are united in death and we you know we assume that Jonathan was saved and, and gone to abraham 's bosom after he died. And and so I think that's explicit biblical testimony of of Saul's salvation. Plus, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He did prophesy. He was uh, a king, and he was in God's right hand. So, um, unless you have a problem with a believer going carnal, then then you don't really struggle with that. Uh, also, uh, the the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament uh, it was different. So uh, they didn't have a permanent indwelling like you and I have a permanent indwelling. David in Psalm fifty-one said, "Do not take your spirit from me." That was a request David made to the Lord. Um, and so, yeah, the spirit could freely come, freely go. Uh, came and went upon Samson. Came and went upon a lot of the judges, and, uh, and and for most people, I think I think Moses and David and maybe one other had the lifelong. uh uh, holy spirit uh for the course of their ministry and it was pretty rare in the old testament and we just take it for granted today because we're we're spoiled church age saints (laughs) so anyway i'm thankful to be a church age saint
2: Uh, can i ask another question too sure um we know from numbers chapter 2 verse 9 and uh, 10 14 that judah led the armies of israel uh, do we know any reason or rationale for why the Lord chose Judah to be uh, the one to be leading the armies of Israel?
0: That's an excellent question. <laughs> it's a why question. There's not always answers to why questions, oh, yeah. uh, but I'll think about that. It may, maybe because they were the largest. Maybe because uh, they were the princely tribe. They were the one. The scepter belonged to Judah. Um,
2: Our Lord came from Judah too. I first. I mean. Right. I, but it's sort of an extrapolation. But.
0: Right. No. No. And and. And and really Judah rose to such preeminence because of the scepter prophecy and God blessed them and multiplied them and they they started to outnumber I think every other tribe except maybe Ephraim. Um, Ephraim was the the predominant tribe in the north. And so sometimes the southern kingdom was called, well, it was called Judah when it was just a a two-tribe kingdom. And the northern kingdom, the ten-tribe kingdom, uh, sometimes it was called Israel, sometimes it was called Ephraim because that was the dominant tribe in, in the north. So Uh, But I'll I'll do some thinking on that and come up with something.
2: Um, And then one more question, please. All right. Uh, Daniel was not part of the prophets, um, but it was part of the writings, at least in the Tanakh. Um, My question is, was it because there was this thinking that Daniel was a eunuch and the Jewish people did not recognize him as a prophet?
0: That is a very interesting question. So the... um, the, uh, the Old Testament, the, the Hebrews divided their scriptures into three parts called the Law, the Writings, and the Prophets. And it's referred to as the, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And so based on those Hebrew words, T-N-K, they, they abbreviated the Tanakh. And so the Tanakh, and so it's in three broad divisions, and Daniel is not where it belongs. Uh, Daniel is not with the prophets. But now here's the thing. I think it used to be and and other people have written about how it used to be and when it got moved and why it got moved. And, uh, of course, Christians speculate on it because we're not the ones that moved it. Uh, the Jews moved it. And they won't write about or tell us why they did it. Um, but when you read, there's there's some interesting statements in Josephus when Josephus is describing the canon, the Hebrew canon. Uh, he describes the the Hebrew canon... Uh, uh, as a book of, you know, 24 books or 22 books. He describes it in the the Tanakh, in the Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. And it appears that when uh, Josephus is listing his books, that he has Daniel among the prophets. And if that's true, if the inference in in, uh, Josephus is accurate, then that means they used to have Daniel in the in the in the Nevi'im, mm-hmm. and then they later moved him to the Ketuvim. And, and And my suspicion is it happened in the second or third century. It happened in the early Talmudic era. It happened in the post-Christian era. And my suspicion is because I think the the first three centuries of the church were probably very effective in evangelizing Jewish people using. The Daniel calendar using the seventy weeks prophecy of Daniel, and there's some uh, there's a lot of writings among the rabbis in the in the uh, Talmudic era, and they finally admitted, they said that the can the calendar in Daniel nine is complete, that there is no way they can they can do the math or, or monkey with the numbers or, the that the the Daniel calendar the 69 sevens, the seventieth seven, of course they didn't have a gap between them they just lumped all seventy sevens together. And the rabbi said, "It's over. It's done. It's complete." And they kind of became preterists <laughs> at that point, Jewish preterists, in, uh, in a Daniel nine kind of way. So um, I think at that time, in in their frustrations at, at being witnessed to by Christians and maybe even losing Jewish people to the Christian faith, I think uh, they 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 moved Daniel and they wouldn't take it out of the canon. I think they 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 feared Yahweh too much to actually take it out of their Bibles. But they did remove him from the, uh, they did two things. They, they moved him from the uh, the prophets and shoved him into the writings. And then I think they also um, adjusted their, uh, what do you call it, a lectionary where you do readings and, and that. How often, you know, does Daniel 9 come up in a Jewish lectionary? About as often as Isaiah 53 comes up in a in a Jewish lectionary, that is never. Mm. Okay, they they deliberately leave those chapters out because they will never come up in a, in a synagogue. They'll never come up in a, in any kind of a Jewish service. Uh, and really, unless you're going to a, a Jewish um, uh, seminary, uh, no Jewish person even knows that's in their Bible. Um, and so it's 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 interesting to me why that happened. But that's a that's a marvelous question. And someday maybe we'll know. But probably not till the Lord returns, so we can ask Him. All right, uh, I promised Carol a question, so we'll cross the aisle again.
1: Just quickly, would you go through uh, Colossians one twenty?
0: Colossians one twenty.
1: Yeah, and and help me with the him this and him that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. So that's in Christ. The Father's good pleasure is for all the fullness to dwell in Christ, which is why the dispensation of the fullness of time is the summing up of all things in Christ uh, from Ephesians 1. And then it says, and through Him so through Christ to reconcile all things to Himself, that's the Father, having made peace through the blood of His cross, that's Christ's cross, through him, through Christ, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So the hymns are Jesus, the Himself is the Father. In, in verse twenty, does that make sense? Yep. Yes. Thank you. Okay. No. No. That's excellent. And uh, we're going to have we're going to spend some more time in that passage as well, um, because the Father was uh, in Christ when Christ was doing what He was doing. So that's uh, that's significant for us. All right. Other questions tonight? Y'all came ready. That's good. Appreciate it. One more for Bill. All right. Bill will give you. You're our cleanup hitter tonight. The bases are loaded. It's the bottom of the ninth. Pressure.
1: Pressure's on. I, I, this just came to me as you were talking with her. Um, when Christ was on earth, was he filled with the Spirit? Yes, he was. Uh, the Spirit descended
0: as a dove at the River Jordan and and lit upon him, and that's why John the Baptist recognized that that was the Christ and uh, the Spirit stayed on Jesus for the entirety of his ministry. Yeah. Except for, of course, the hours of darkness on the cross. Then <laughs> the Father turned his back and the Son and the Holy Spirit departed, and I think that's the reference to my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a doubling of the my God, my God. It's a uh, can't prove it, but it, it seems to seems to click. Yeah. Well, there you go. All right. That's a freebie. Yeah. No. No charge. No. Uh, no charge for that. All right. Well, back to Philippians two then, and uh, some neat things we're going to get into, and uh, right off the bat with a so then, and uh, some some things here too that I think are are useful. Um, because, uh, yeah, there are therefores, and then there are different kinds of therefores, and there's really a big variety of therefores. And, uh, but this one really is driving a point home. This one is really a culmination that requires some digestion of, of content. So, uh, just to remind ourselves, this is what we're looking at in chapter two. It features three exhortations. We've covered two of them now. And, uh, some travel arrangements for Paul's envoys. And that's verses 19 to the end of the chapter. These exhortations are follow-ups to the closing exhortation of chapter 1. And so we've already covered, make my joy complete, that was verses 1 and 2, the conclusion of which leads right into the second, which is have this attitude. Have this attitude. And as we've been studying it now for several of these recent weeks, have this attitude is the thinking that Christ had, the humbling, that He emptied Himself, He humbled Himself. And so the Father exalted Him and the Father bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. And so everything that Jesus set as the forerunner, as the prototype, as the example, uh, He is the example for us to follow. And so uh, the way He thought is how we should think And uh, in terms of laying aside our privileges or any claim that we might have to any entitlement and uh, the humility uh, of all things, the obedience and all of that. And I'll just give you a clue because, um, of course, Jesus emptied Himself and one of the first things we're going to see here. In in the exhortation that starts with verse twelve, it mentions obedience. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, okay. So clearly, we're this is a you know a follow up to the have this attitude in yourselves. Christ obeyed, and uh, and now he's urging the uh, Philippians to remain obedient, and so we'll talk about that as well. The third exhortation is work out your salvation work out your salvation. And It's a fun one, and it's powerful, and it's good to know. Not to be afraid of, and don't fall for the twisted, false teaching that comes out of this. We're not working for our salvation. We're working out our salvation. It's an outworking, okay? And, it's, uh, and what salvation are we talking about anyway? Right? We have phase one, phase two, phase three. What salvation are we talking about there? Well, maybe. All right. I'm not going to give it away tonight. Um, maybe. Maybe not. I don't think, well, I'm going to give it away. Never mind. <laughs> so, a lot of times uh, when people teach it wrong, they teach it wrong on the basis of which salvation they think it's dealing with. And then they, they fix the wrong approach by teaching it with a different of the three forms of salvation we're talking about. And I'm going to talk about that also and consider, you know, Maybe the real fix isn't the one you think it is. Maybe it's the other one. All right. So maybe it's not phase two. Maybe it's phase three. And uh, does the context uh, demand that? And uh, how compelling is it in the, uh, in the grammar? So we'll, we'll deal with that. Work out your salvation. And uh, that's for all of us to do. And it's a corporate uh, your, by the way. It's, uh, it's uh, of, of all y'all, of yours. So we'll talk about that as well in the plural. And then once we get through the, uh, the three exhortations, then we have the travel arrangements in verses 19 through 30. He wants to send Timothy, and then uh, he himself wants to come. And in the meantime, until he can send Timothy, he just has to delay slightly. Uh, he's got to find out what, what his outcome is going to be. And as soon as he learns that, then uh, he's going to send Timothy and, uh, and then in the meantime, uh, before even Timothy's able to go, uh, Epaphroditus is going to be sent, and uh, Epaphroditus will arrive, probably carrying the letter of, of Philippians and, uh, and those details there, which we studied already in the introduction. You remember that two years ago when we introduced or whenever we introduced uh, Philippians? This passage is, is huge for us because it describes all these commutes back and forth between Paul's imprisonment location and Philippi. And six or seven different commutes back and forth that the book uh, really makes Rome unlikely because of the distance and the time involved between Rome and Philippi. And really helps to make uh, Ephesus a much more reasonable uh, place of authorship. But anyway, so we will deal with that as well. For tonight, however, we are going to get a a start on Work Out Your Salvation, and we're going to talk about So Then. And we're going to talk about... um, the things that are connected here to the so then, in particular the beloved and the the obedience and and the, uh, the aspects here. So we start with the so then. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. If you're, if you're intimidated by verse 12, you can at least be encouraged that verse 13 uh, takes the pressure off and lets you know that um, it's not your effort that's going to make it happen. It's not your energy, your strength, it's not your working, it's God working as uh, as this happens. Okay, so uh, we start with the so then. So then, this is point one, so then takes the doctrine of humility and exaltation so then takes the doctrine of humility and exaltation of Jesus Christ in the kenosis hymn and directs the application to the Philippians. Everything we've been spending in these last uh, several weeks studying humility, studying kenosis studying exaltation Studying the pattern, remember as we saw, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you at the proper time. That Jesus, not only did He do what He did, but He did what He did so that we would see what He did and we can do the same. We can think the same th- uh, thoughts. We can do the same. Uh, we can follow that pattern. So then, grammatically we've got the conjunction here and it's linking, it's a conclusion and it's linking the, uh, everything that went before to what follows, and is doing so on a, on a rational basis. Do you get what he's saying? If so, now live it out, apply it. So then. The expression, so then, takes the doctrine of humility and exaltation of Jesus Christ from the kenosis hymn and directs the application to the Philippians. And I'm going to highlight for you some things here from the BDAG lexicon and, and show you why sometimes it's not vocabulary that makes a difference, sometimes it's syntax. Sometimes it's the usage of the word. And uh, in, in many respects uh, that makes all the difference in the world. And that's uh, that's a very excellent use for the BDAG lexicon. What we have here is we have hosta, H-O-S-T-E. Uh, hosta is our conjunction, the hosta is our... Uh, uh, our linking term here. And it introduces in, an independent clause followed by the imperative. If that doesn't mean anything to you, that's fine. Uh, we'll, we'll spell it out and, 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 and you'll start to, to catch on to how this works. But the, uh, the BDAG lexicon is useful for that. BDAG stands for Bauer, right? Donker, Arndt, and Gingrich. There we go. But the first couple editions were B-A-D-G. And this third edition is BDAG, and they swapped the acronym around because um, different. they're all different German scholars, uh, but they, uh, they had kind of a different impact in how they influenced the, the text. So there it is. I'll just bring it up for you and I will pop it out. Why will I pop it out? So that we can make it larger. And there it is. And we will make it larger. All right, so um, there it is Greek English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. And it is the third edition. It is the BDAG instead of the BAGD, BAGD. Um, this is BDAG, okay? And it does make a difference. And in fact uh, I have pastor friends of mine that don't like the third edition, they prefer the second edition because they think that there were some theological compromises and, and things going on there um, as far as that goes. But Frederick William Dunker and uh, Walter Bauer um, anyway it's marvelous. The uh, Of course it's alphabetized like you would expect in a lexicon, most lexicons are alphabetized. But then in addition to giving uh word definitions, right? which you expect a, de- a lexicon or a dictionary to do. But uh Bdag also uh demonstrates the in the various usages and the way those usages are together. And so this is a good example of that. So hosta, H O S T E, hosta. Um pretty old term. I mean it goes back to Homer and uh you've got um links there to to de Brunner, and Funk's grammar and some other uh, reference works there. Now, it breaks it down in these, in these uh, sections, and if you're not familiar with it, then tonight you'll get familiar with it. So we have a main point 1 with an A and a B. You've got a main point 2, right, with an A and a B. But even under the A, there's a lowercase a, which is a Greek alpha and a beta. And, uh, and then you're back to the B... All right, that's a pretty short one. Some of these get real complicated. So this is a good one to demonstrate. Because yeah, you get some terms that'll have one, two, three, four, five, six, and then they'll have subpoints and whatever else. Um, you can also, you can't do this in a print Bible, but you can adjust your uh, visual filters here, and in BDAG specifically you can click on the outline formatting. And now, in case uh, you were struggling to see those subdivisions of the paragraph, Logos software went ahead and indented them for you, so that you don't miss them in uh, in the subdivided paragraphs on that. So, all right. So we have "hosta." How is "hosta" used? What does "hosta" mean? "Hosta" means uh, you know, therefore or so. Okay. But there's a lot of Greek words that mean therefore or so, okay? Many different ways to say therefore in in Greek, and and they're applied in the New Testament, right? Greeks were philosophers and thinkers and they involved logic and they would love to present their case in such a way that they could then say therefore, all right? Uh, And and so they had a lot of therefores in their language. So what makes hosta different from other therefores? That's, That's a curious study, all right. So a couple of ways that hosta is used. First of all, it could be used introducing independent clauses. And so if it's introducing an independent clause, then that's one way that it's used. All right? And, uh, or, secondly, it could be used to introduce a dependent clause. Right? And so there's a difference in how it's used when it's introducing an independent clause, or how it's used if it's introducing a dependent clause. In a dependent clause, uh, if it's, it could be describing a result. And so hosta would be translated, so that. So that. And it would be a result, okay? Not what we have here. This isn't a result. It's not a dependent clause. Uh, we're, we're not. Uh, Paul isn't teaching the kenosis hymn with the result that the Philippians are going to automatically... Um, uh, you know, work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, it's actually it's an independent clause that's following the hosta, so it's not a result. You see the difference? Okay, so it could be a, it could introduce a dependent clause of the actual result. It could also um, introduce a dependent clause of the intended result. Okay, and uh, sometimes the intended result is not the same as the actual result right? You ever have that happen to you? <laughs> you had an intended result and then the actual result was something spectacular. Okay. Well, that happens to everybody. Anyway, those are in the dependent clauses. And, uh, and you can read more on those if you want. Um, in the uh, actual result, sometimes it uses an infinitive. Uh, sometimes it uses uh, it's followed by the accusative with the infinitive different uh, different ways there. Well, we're not going to look at that tonight. We're going to uh, sometimes it's followed by the indicative instead of the infinitive. Those are the different uses there. Um, coming back now to the uh, the first section, the one that concerns us, is, uh, is here. And by the way, I meant to do this earlier. Let me put this up here. What verse are we in? Philippians 2.12? All right. This is also kind of a fun feature in Logos. Um, Logos will uh, kind of look over your shoulder while you're studying the Bible, and it sees what books, what books you have open on your desk, right? And it, while you're reading in your Bible in Philippians 2.12, uh, your little research assistant's sitting there on your shoulder, and it says, ah, you've got your BDAG lexicon open to hosta right now, don't you? And so it colors the hosta word you see that that uh, whatever color that is, okay, and uh, and so it, it highlights that because it's trying to be helpful, saying you got your lexicon open to hosta right now, and here's where you can spot it in uh, in your text. And it does the same thing too, by the way, um, when you're reading through your BDAG lexicon, which can be quite lengthy and quite technical, and you might not exactly spot. Now, where's the Philippians two twelve reference again? And so uh, your, your little research assistant is very helpful to just highlight that for you and say, oh, by the way, this is, this is what you're looking at right here. Okay? Oh, that's what I'm looking at right there. Okay, there it is. Alright. So um, in introducing an independent clause, uh, hosta is typically translated for this reason therefore or so. Alright? And in many cases it's followed by an indicative tense verb followed by the indicative. And uh, examples of that include Matthew 12.12. There's the example there, Matthew 12.12. How much more valuable then, therefore, so then, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And that's an indicative verb, it is lawful, and uh, it's a Conclusion there in an independent clause related to what precedes, and yet giving the for this reason, the therefore, the so. And so that's an example there. And uh, it's, it's fairly common, it goes back to Xenophon, it goes back to Aristophanes, uh, uh, Justin, second century AD, Tatian, second century AD. So uh, before the New Testament era, after the New Testament era, it's a fairly common. Usage of hosta. And then you have all these other references. If you want to look at uh, Matthew 19 6, you can. If you want to look at, you know, you can just hover over all of these to remind yourself of, uh, of what the verses say. Or if you want to spend more time on it, click on them and uh, go look at it in your, in your Bible and, and so forth. If you don't want to click, uh, if you don't have time to click, you're just hovering. Okay, hover. And every time you hover the mouse, You get the pop-up that reads the verse to you there. So that's useful on that. Even uh, the shepherd of Hermes there. All right. Now, sometimes it's not followed by an indicative. So we're not building a case and giving a so then and telling how things are. We're building a case, we're giving a so then, and we're telling you what to do. Okay, and that's what we're hap- that's what's happening here. We're building the case based upon Jesus and his humility and exaltation, and then we're saying so. Then, in uh, in in light of that, uh, for that reason, on that basis, and now we're going to tell you what to do. We're going to give you an imperative. All right, and that's what we see here. So we have hosta introducing an independent clause followed by the imperative. And this too is a structure that's not unique to the Bible. It's uh, found in, in Xenophon and in Lucian, in uh, some different papyri, in, in the Septuagint, in Job and Maccabees. And uh, a good example there in 1 Corinthians 15, eight, uh, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And that was, you might recall, that was the grand conclusion to 1 Corinthians. That was a series of imperatives that came there at the end in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 when you're talking about the, you know, the, the guarantee of the resurrection and all the glories of what we have in 1 Corinthians 15. And that whole case was built to then be followed with a so then and, an, and a series of imperatives that followed. Remarkably enough, the language here is probably the closest we have anywhere to Philippians 2.12, because not only is it so then, it also has beloved. Alright? So then my beloved brethren. Uh, Just as uh, uh, he's calling the Philippians here his beloved. So uh, that's a good good illustration there. Um, Others throughout the New Testament include um, 1 Corinthians 10.12 Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Okay? Now like I say, there's different kinds of therefores in the New Testament, but this is one that is a significant theological therefore that has built a case, in some cases for a verse, for multiple verses, for a chapter. A lengthy case has been built theologically. And then a therefore is is taking all of that and bringing it forward to somebody for an application. So let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Uh, in chapter 11 and verse 33, "...so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another." In, in 1 Corinthians 11 he's talking about all the disorder and all the drunkenness and all the gluttony and all the, the hurt feelings and, the, and the, uh, things, the problems that were happening in their communion services in Corinth. And so he had a lengthy development. The theological realities that were uh, is what made that, that whole process so hor- horrifying. And now he has a "...so then." Come to the logical conclusion. Come think it through. Make the application yourself. Chapter 14 and verse 39 Therefore my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. And that of course deals with first century issues we wouldn't prophesy or speak in tongues today. But still it's the same concept. He had a lengthy theological development, he made the case and then he wanted them to think it through and and come to the conclusion as well uh, on that basis. The same construction we're looking at tonight is going to come back again in chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and my crown in this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved. And so the material that comes at the end of chapter 3 then is, is what's, what precedes the therefore here and then gets brought into chapter 4 uh, for them to think it through and come to that conclusion. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's at the end of the rapture paragraph of uh, First Thessalonians chapter four. You have all that information in thirteen through seventeen about the rapture doctrine. So think it through, digest the theology, digest the doctrine, come to the same appreciation that Paul has come through in digesting that doctrine, and encourage one another. Rapture is one of the best doctrines you can possibly teach. If uh, if you've got a discouraged brother or discouraged sister man, let's review rapture doctrine. Because, <laughs> you know, as Andy Wood said last week, he says, I can't think of a single problem I'm facing right now that the rapture won't take care of. Okay, It takes care of all of it. We get to go be with the Lord. James one nineteen, Technically, James one nineteen is, is not an appropriate use, um, but BDAG will include it anyway, and it, it will mark it with a VL. VL is, is a Latin abbreviation for um, uh, it's a variant reading, a variant lexiones or something like that. It's a Latin phrase. It, it means that probably the best manuscripts don't have it, but there are variant manuscripts that do have it. There are variant manuscripts that do include the word there in that verse. And so um, BDAG will will mark that in James one nineteen. "...this you know, my beloved brethren, Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I don't think it has, I don't think it's legitimate in that verse. It is, though, in First Peter four nineteen. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Would you ever want to do that sometime? I think we all should do it, right? Well, the basis for why we do that is the theological development that preceded that hosta, okay. The verses that led up to that, therefore, on the basis of the verses preceding 1 Peter 4.19, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. All right. So those are the examples there. Okay? And, and BDAG is a useful lexicon to, to do that. Uh, and that also helps you to weed out reading through every host in the New Testament uh, when uh, a lot of the hostas in the New Testament are not being used in the same way that the host is being used here, okay? Introducing an independent clause followed by an imperative, so you can zero in on just those particular um, instances. Sometimes the imperative is negated, right? So sometimes, what happens when you when you attach a, a negation in front of a command? It's a prohibition. It means don't do something, okay? And So it's it's the same thing as a command, it's just has a, it just has a no in front of it. So don't do something. And uh, hosta with may plus the imperative in 1 Corinthians 3.21. So then let no one boast in men for all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So then let no one boast. And it's the same concept. It's a so then. There's a theological development that precedes it. There's a so then so that you can think it through, cycle the doctrine, absorb the theology, and then you make the application. It just so happens that this application is a prohibition. Don't boast in men. Or 4-5, so then, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. Okay? We heard about this uh, Sunday night related to the judgment seat of Christ, did we not? Uh, why are we going to preempt Jesus? <laughs> why are we going to conduct our own uh, premature judgment seat of Bob? Right? Or, or, you know, put your own name in there. As if somehow we're qualified to convene the court early and start condemning people. Hosta. So there. Uh, therefore. Stop doing that. Occasionally you have a hortatory subjunctive, which is what the author of Hebrews loves to do, where he includes himself, and instead of commanding you in the second person, he just says, hey, let's do this, and uh, and uh, he has something like that. It's still the hosta followed by a hortatory subjunctive instead of an imperative, but essentially they have, the care, they have the force of an imperative. So, therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I would include that as as basically a hosta plus an imperative. It just happens to be a little bit more stylistic. Happens to be just a little bit more, um, however you want to take that. Um, it carries the force of imperative. Just the author decides to include himself, uh, in, as well as uh, ordering his uh, his readers. Okay. Beyond that, uh, in the uh, once you get past the New Testament literature. Notice how the New Testament is all emboldened. Those Bible verses are all bold. It's that way it jumps out at you. You can see it's all bold. Um, Septuagint uses will not be bold. Uh, Church father uses will not be bold. So Job 6.21 up there is not bold. You can still hover over it. You can still click it. You can still read it. Um, You can read Maccabees if you want to read Maccabees. You can read Clement. Here's 2nd Clement. And these aren't, these aren't Bible verses, so you don't view them as Scripture, you don't view them as God-breathed and inspired, but they are written in the first century or two centuries after the New Testament, and they're very useful for seeing how this uh, grammatical construction continues to be used, and you get uh, more examples there. So then, brothers, let us acknowledge Him in our actions by loving one another, by not committing adultery or slandering one another, or being jealous, but by being self-controlled, compassionate, and kind. And... Uh, Nothing wrong with that. Second uh, Clement 7, one. So then, my brothers, let us enter the contest, realizing that the contest is at hand, and that while many come to enter the earthly contest, not all are crowned but only those who have trained hard and competed well. That sounds pretty similar to Corinthians, doesn't it? And uh, let us run the straight course, the heavenly contest. Ten one. Therefore, my brothers, let us do the will of the Father who called us that we may live, and let us pursue virtue now more than ever. Let us abandon that evil mindset, the forerunner of our sins, and flee ungodliness, lest evil things overtake us. So, Anyway, another good example is related to a, uh, a theological case is made, and on the basis of that doctrine then, think it through, apply it, and uh, here's your consequences. And so, really, that's uh, what we see here then. We have a so then, and, uh, and it's a big deal, okay? It's not a so what, <laughs> okay? It's a so then, all right? So then, since Jesus Christ humbled himself and on that basis was exalted, what do you think we should be doing? So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear fear and trembling. Now, uh, I'm going to touch upon this in uh, different ways. I'm going to talk about obedience. I also want to show you some of the fun you have when you're reading in the Greek. Let's bring this up. i me close my Q&A window and maximize this one. All right. Nope, too big. We'll go with that. Now, um, remember, Greek is not a word-order language like English, and so words can come in whatever order. Uh, and sometimes you, an author might, for stylistic reasons, for emphasis reasons, might want to put a word up front that we would never put up front, or might put a word at the very end that we would never put at the very end. But by virtue of doing that, either one, it draws attention to it, and in fact, Paul does both right here in this verse. He has the hosta right up front, and then he has... The very last word of the verse, "Kater is the uh, imperative for work out. Okay, and so that jumps out and it grabs your attention. The main thrust of this verse is: so then, work out. Okay, so then work out. Okay, and it's not go to the gym and be a physical fitness freak. It's uh, it's a different kind of workout. All right, because I'd hate to disobey the scriptures. So then, work out. And sometimes it's, uh, it's amusing, but it's also edifying to just read the Greek verse, word by word by word by word, give it a straight English translation word by word, no matter how backwards or, or weird-sounding it comes out, because in that way, you, you can pick up on some of the, uh, some of the, the highlights that, uh, that Paul's intending. So we start with a hosta, or not just Paul, any author. We start with a hosta, and then we have agapetoi, so then, beloved of me, my beloved, just as always obeyed you have, kind of Yodish, right? He says, not as in the presence of me only, but now much more in the absence of me. And then, I lost my grip on my highlighter, sorry about that. Metta, with fear and trembling, the of yourselves salvation with fear and trembling. The, of yourselves, salvation work out. All right. Did you follow that? Was that not useful? Or at least amusing. All right. All right. Well, we'll just take it in in this order. How about that? Uh, I do want to start, though, with obedience, because this is what... uh, again, I think helps to bridge the so then. Um, well, we'll talk about beloved third, but so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, they've always been obedient. You have a child that's always been obedient and then you have another child that's never been obedient or rarely, okay? And so maybe one child is so rarely disobedient you have a hard time remembering the last time it happened. And then you have another child that you have a hard time remembering the last time they were obedient, right? Well, now here's a crowd, and this is the case for Paul, because Paul had the Corinthians and Paul had the Philippians, okay? He called them both obedient. He called them both beloved. I'm sorry, not obedient. He called them both beloved. My beloved brethren in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. My beloved in Philippians two twelve. Both flocks he called beloved, okay? If it was me, I wouldn't be calling the Corinthians beloved, but Paul did. Alright, so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. So what do you tell the kid that always obeys? Keep it up. (laughs) Okay? And more so. Okay? Keep it up. And just as you have always obeyed, this is what helps to bridge the so then because what did Jesus do? Jesus obeyed. Jesus obeyed. In fact, Jesus obeyed without limits. Jesus obeyed. You remember when we talked about this? Let me get back to the outline here. So uh, verse 8, being found in obedience as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus was obedient and he stayed obedient and he stayed obedient. He never stopped being obedient even when he was making the ultimate sacrifice in spiritual death, uh, separation from God the Father. Now, He's saying, so then, Philippians, you've always been obedient. You've always been obedient when I was with you, when I was absent, you didn't stop. Now you've got some stuff coming up. Okay? There's some affliction coming up. There's some testing coming up. And you've got to stay obedient. You're not going to draw a line. Jesus didn't draw a line. You're not going to draw a line. You're going to stay obedient. And in so doing, what's going to happen? Well, what happened for Jesus? For Jesus, the Father exalted him. For this reason, the Father exalted him. For this reason, he bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. The Father bestowed upon him, shall we call it a phase three salvation reward package? Okay, okay. So when I'm looking at this and I'm seeing the, um, the links between the paragraph before and the paragraph after, I'm seeing the transition with the so then, I'm seeing the obedience, I'm seeing the work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well what's the corollary to that in the Jesus passage, in the, in the Kenosis hymn? It's the exaltation from the Father. It's the uh, it's the bestowal of, how, of of the name, above every name. It's the phase three salvation that Jesus was Reaching forward to. is was the joy set before Him for which reason He de- he despised the, the shame. He endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so I believe, and we're going to get into this when we talk about working out and what is the salvation, that it, it the working out does happen in time and so in a sense it, it does encompass the phase two salvation, but ultimately it's looking forward to that phase three salvation. It's looking forward to laying up your treasures in heaven and working out the, the, uh, the phase three salvation reward package that you expect to receive at the, at the Bema, at the judgment seat of Christ. When he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's saying, produce that reward package that Jesus Christ will bestow upon you at the judgment seat of Christ. Don't ever stop obeying. Alright, we'll, uh, we'll spell this out in the upcoming sub-points on this. First of all, um, understand Jesus was obedient without limit. Jesus was obedient without limit. And This is what we developed back in verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, not just by obeying, but in the continual, prolonged obeying, he became obedient. And we talked about why that's a different statement. You can obey and not become obedient. <laughs> you can obey grudgingly. You can obey because you have to. You can obey because your dad told you, apologize to your sister. Tell your sister you're sorry. And you can obey that without becoming obedient. (laughs) And so you grit your teeth and you say, I'm sorry. And then they tell you, no, say it again and say it nicely. I'm sorry. Now even though I've obeyed, did I, did I become obedient? Or did I just obey? I obeyed in that instant without becoming obedient. Okay. Jesus didn't just obey. The Philippians obeyed. But Jesus became obedient. And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so there were stages, there were times when We all face it. We've we've been good. We've done right. We've been been good. Isn't that enough? Can we stop already? Somebody else's turn. I'm done. I hate this. Okay. All right. And so Jesus was obedient without limit. The Philippians, they were obedient to a point. They were obedient past that point. They were obedient under other conditions. The Philippians always obeyed in Paul's presence. <laughs> I think the Corinthians did too. But the Philippians also obeyed in Paul's absence, which the Corinthians didn't. All right. You know, <laughs> are you the same person when no one's looking? Isn't that the definition of integrity? Integrity. You know, do you, do you do what you're supposed to do even when the person who told you to do it isn't looking? You know, to be obedient in Paul's absence, that's a, that's a, that's a positive compliment. I mean, that's, that's a noteworthy blessing. The Philippians always obeyed in Paul's presence and much more in his absence. Does it make a difference if, if the pastor's out of town? What's the attendance like on a Wednesday night when the pastor's out of town? I don't know, I wasn't here last week. Some of you were. But see, there's a difference. Is there supposed to be? And so we have uh, the statement here. So, the Philippians always obeyed in Paul's presence, much more in his absence. You can kind of think of that as the two stages with Jesus, that Jesus was obedient, became obedient, became obedient to the point of death. But then there's this even death on a cross there's that final step. And the Philippians are on the verge of taking that final step. Because they've been obedient in Paul's absence, or presence, they've been obedient in Paul's absence, now are they going to go that third step? Are they going to go to that third level, to the extra mile? All right. Anyway, we have a fun contrast here also when Paul describes his presence and his absence it's a play on words, and it's a noteworthy expression because um, it really describes the whole church age, does it not? The presence, the parousia of Jesus Christ, the absence of Jesus Christ. Jesus is—he uh, was present in the incarnation with the disciples, then he ascended to the Father's right hand, he seated at the Father's right hand, and now he's absent, but he's coming soon. The word for presence is parousia, It's used 24 times in the New Testament, and it's the word that refers to His coming. And it could be His coming for us at the rapture, it could be His coming for Israel at the second advent. Both episodes, both uh, events are called parousia, depending on what verse you're looking at. But uh, the contrast of His presence and His absence, it is significant, I think. The entire dispensation of the church operates in the absence of Jesus Christ, but with an imminent parousia, the imminent presence. So he's not here now, but he's on his way. And how many of the parables are like that? Where the king has gone away and he's not here now, are we going to be the wicked, lazy slave that thinks, oh, well, it's going to be he's not coming back for a long time, I can do what I want to do. Are we going to be the faithful, well done, good and faithful servant? We're going to be found faithfully serving when the Master returns. There's a reason why those parables are given to, to convey imminency. <laughs> I'm out of time, but uh, Apousia is, a, is a, what we call a hapax legomena, it's only used here in the New Testament. The only place that Apousia shows up in the whole New Testament is right here in this verse. And that's a good thing because the Strong's number is 666. Okay? Don't read anything antichrist, satanic, and that's not mark of the beast. It's just a Strong's number, and James Strong's was assigning numbers alphabetically, and when he got to Apusia, it just happened to be number six six six. Okay, no bearing on the the mark of the beast. Perusia is number thirty nine fifty two, and so uh, we'll come back Sunday morning. And we'll talk about the Perusia. We'll talk about the appearing of Jesus Christ and why, of course, we want to be obedient in His absence, uh, so that we're found obedient in His presence And uh, found faithful when he does return. So we don't shrink away from him in shame at his appearing. Something else that was discussed Sunday night. And then we'll talk about beloved, dearly beloved. And uh, it's a term we don't use much around here. Probably should use more, all right, besides weddings and funerals. We should use dearly beloved every time we come together. Because the New Testament uses it a whole lot more than we do. And uh, we're probably wrong for that. So let's uh, let's get convicted as we go through our agapetos applications. But well, all that is Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for the blessings of uh, of last week in uh, taking part in the Schaefer conference. I thank you for uh, Cornelius and the message he gave on forgiveness. I thank you for um, just all of your faithfulness. I thank you for the Sunday night teachers. I thank you for not just the ten men that have stepped up, but three women, Father, that are. Teaching in the uh, their uh, other women on Sunday nights, and it's just uh, it's a blessing, Father, to see all the things that you are providing in uh, in and through this uh, this tiny little congregation. Thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.